Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Fetch the Patriarchy edition. It's Wednesday, April 22nd, 2020. On today's show, Mrs. America is the latest prestige miniseries history lesson that tells the story of Phyllis Schlafly and the battle over the Equal Rights Amendment. And along the way, the birth of backlash conservatism. It's on Hulu FX hybrid thing. And then Fetch the Bolt Cutters is the new album from Fiona Apple. It's being widely hailed as an absolute tour de force we discuss with Slate's own Carl Wilson. And finally, it was my turn at the Kultur pick, which you can turn into a German single word, K-O-M-F-O-R-T-K-U-L-T-U-R. And I'm so in love with it. I don't care that it's a terrible joke. I'm going to say it anyway, Kultur. And Anyway, I chose for this my all-time most frequent Gabfest name check that has gone without a segment, probably my favorite movie of all time, Local Hero. Don't break my heart, people. Do not break my heart. Joining me is uh, Julia Turner, who is the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, who is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. All right, uh, let's go. Mrs. America. It stars Kate Blanchett, who ended up on our cutting room floor last week when we were talking about the talented Mr. Ripley. We did, in fact, discuss her, but I think it got excised. Uh, anyway, she now stars as Phyllis Schlafly. Schlafly played, for those of you who don't know, played every bit as big a role, perhaps you could argue in some respects even bigger in the creation of contemporary conservatism as William Buckley did, Goldwater, possibly even Reagan. Back in the 1970s, she mobilized women against the Equal Rights Amendment. She demagogued it as a ploy for unisex bathrooms and ladies in foxholes. In one sense, this show, this miniseries, is a biopic about Schlafly, who was a housewife, a politico, a careerist, and finally, as I said, a demagogue. But in another, it's quite a panoramic of the times, the early 1970s. It takes in Nixon's America and the homemakers who supported it, as well as the confusions and the factionalisms uh, of their liberal counterparts, notably Gloria Steinem, who's played by Rose Byrne here, Betty Friedan played by Tracy Ullman, and Shirley Chisholm, played by Uzo Adaba. And finally, it's also a deep history of America's cold civil war, a term that I coined on this show. I firmly believe that. Let's listen to a clip. Now, if the ERA passes, it will give the federal government a massive amount of power. I mean, are we no longer the party of limited government and states' rights? You have no idea the pressure that we're under. We have to give the women's movement something. Oh, I think you've given them plenty. You've given them the Pay Equity Act and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, both of which I supported, not to mention women are already protected from discrimination in the Constitution by the Equal Protection Clause under the 14th Amendment. Now, I know of only one law that is discriminatory toward women, and that is a North Dakota law stipulating that a wife must have her husband's permission to make wine. So if a woman in North Dakota really wants to make wine and her husband forbids it, she can sue for that right under the 14th Amendment. Okay. Maybe an amendment is unnecessary. And yes, maybe we need to do something about that second clause, but sometimes we have to vote for laws that are symbolic so we can get the Dems to join us in passing more substantive items on our agenda, like tax reform. Well, I hope your tax reform bill is worth writing off the 40 million homemakers for whom the ERA is not symbolic. 
The women I know are terrified. They don't want to be drafted into combat duty. And you'll have to answer to them come November. Julia, let me let me start with you. What'd you make of this? It's a really interesting choice to frame a panoramic portrait of second wave feminism around Phyllis Schlafly. And I think that's the big fundamental choice at the core of this production and one that I am very curious to hear what you made of. Obviously, it adds some pleasant tension. It gives us an antihero at the center of the story rather than just, I mean, imagine this series just built around Rose Byrne's Gloria Steinem, who's presented in an interesting way as sort of a feisty vacillator who's forever tucking her hair behind her glasses. It really makes you seem like it was a lot of aesthetic work for Gloria Steinem to maintain her 70s look. Um, because Kate Blanchett is such an amazing actress and she gives such a compelling performance, the, the show takes as its central mystery, why on earth would so many women have opposed an Equal Rights Amendment, which seems like a pretty anodyne potential force for good in the world, even if what you would like to do with your freedoms is stay home and and uh, keep house. Um, the show is riveting. The performances are, are really great. It's really satisfying to see this era portrayed on screen and given some historical attention. I mean, I was just thinking, how many portrayals have there been fictionalized or semi-fictionalized uh, of the civil rights era from a racial perspective in Hollywood and how many have there been about the women's rights movement? Like many, many fewer. Um, so it's pleasing to just be here and and encounter this story. But I think that the choice to frame it around this compelling anti-heroine does something interesting to what the show is trying to say about that era and the feminist movement. And I'm Looking forward to puzzling through how that choice affects the themes here with you guys. Right. Dana, I mean, Julia's right. For all the civil rights dramas that we've seen in the course of our lifetime, there are certain staples of that genre, including, you know, the white Southern bigot, the Southern sheriff, on and on and on and on. And and it's quite a twist to have the women's fight retold in such a way as to elevate to that level of archetype of really unfamiliar character in some ways. I mean, I know people who scarcely know who Phyllis Schlafly is, and yet she played this instrumental role. What an equivocal and weird figure she is uh, in both the writing and Blanchett's performance. What do you make of this? I mean, I was so impressed with this show going in. I, I, I figured, I mean, I just sort of automatically figured because this is the case with so many of the historical biopic kind of um, series that are just spreading everywhere. I feel like we've watched so many of these. I can't think right now exactly which ones I'm thinking of, but it seems like every other show is taking some, you know, well-known or lesser-known figure from the past and spinning out their story into an overly long biopic treatment that's more episodes than you would ever need about that person. And this show completely sidesteps that problem in part by being so uh, multifarious and whose stories it's telling. I mean, it's called Mrs. America as if it were the story of, of 
Phyllis Schlafly, who prefers and is always correcting people to call her Mrs. and not Ms., right? Ms. being the, uh, the, the name of Gloria Steinem's magazine. Um, but it's not only about her at all. In fact, the first episode is called Phyllis and is about primarily her and, and her life at home and how she sort of starts to become this grassroots conservative organizer. But every episode after that is about a different character and focuses on, you know, there's one that focuses on Shirley Chisholm and one that focuses on Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem, etc. And that really makes it in a way, at least as far in as I've seen, I'm now four and a half episodes in, so slightly more than halfway. Uh, it makes it really kind of a show about intersectionality in a, a smarter way than I expected. I mean, it's about not only the women's movement on both sides, the conservative and the progressive side, but about fractures within that movement, which, you know, have to do with race and with uh, sexuality. There's a question of whether, you know, lesbians are welcome in the in the movement. Um, and Betty Friedan surprisingly takes this sort of ant- this homophobic stance in that, that question. And all those fractures are just traced and I thought really fascinating ways and, and, and pretty fair ways. I haven't yet felt like anyone, including Phyllis Schlafly, is being put in that that box that you're talking about. Oh, there's the, you know, there's the mm-hmm. white bigot and, you know, right. let's just make fun of their views. Um, so I've been incredibly impressed so far. Also, I was impressed that it's full of wit and it, it does not at all feel like a history lesson or a civics lesson. There's lots of humor. All the characters are funny and flawed. Tracy Ullman as Betty Friedan is just hilarious. And uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I'm certainly going to watch it all the way through. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I find it to be a little bit more of a history lesson, sort of expositionally overstuffed uh, history lesson than you do, Dana, but I admire it immensely, especially for the performances. But but there's another aspect of it that I really admire, which is Julia once said, the past doesn't know it's the past, you know, uh, which really stuck with me. And, and um, Mad Men sure did make it feel as though the past knew it was the past. It's what I didn't like about that show and why I never really pursued it. Uh, In other words, one always heard the writers chuckling over the fact that people smoked indoors, you know, even in a a OBGYN's office. And I I just, that didn't turn me on as a viewer particularly, but this, this show, the past doesn't really know it's the past here. It really feels as though in the, they're in the thick of it. And they're in the thick of a battle that they're going to lose. So this feels like a tragedy that doesn't flatter the um, the present. The, the showrunner of this show, a woman named Davi Waller, who wrote all the episodes and is one of the producers, also worked extensively, I think, on, on Mad Men. Um, and John Slattery of Mad Men also plays an important role as Phyllis Schlafly's husband. But... Although I was not a regular watcher of Mad Men, I followed it enough and, and heard people talk about it enough to know exactly that, you know, what you're perceiving as a flaw in it. It's its way of looking back at history from this somewhat smug point of view of the present. And to me, the fact that this show was written and created by a woman and is co-directed by a woman, it has a directing team, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, uh, the filmmakers of most recently Captain Marvel, but also great movies that we've talked about on this show, including Sugar and Half Nelson. Um, the fact that there are women on the creative end in such powerful positions, I think makes itself felt in this show in that it doesn't feel like we are, you know, tapping on the glass of an aquarium or something. There's a sense of lived experience in, um, in the documentation of women's domestic and professional lives and and how they clash. Yeah, I I totally second that. It op the whole show opens with Schlafly is this quite brilliant, uh, technocratically adept 
woman with the facts of American foreign policy and arms control totally at her fingertips. And she's on the fringes of politics and policymaking and so is actually asked into high-level meetings. And at one of those, she is very, very badly condescended to by Barry Goldwater. And uh, more than any of the men at the meeting, she knows that the salt, what the what's at stake in the uh, arms limitation talks between Nixon and was it Khrushchev or Brezhnev? I think it's Khrushchev at that point. And and she's told, nonetheless, to go out and fetch a notepad and take notes for the meeting. And she, as she goes out to get the pen, she overhears the chants of the uh, feminists uh, protesting for the ERA. And she walks back in the room a changed person. And what most of us would think is at that moment you would become a feminist. And I think what the show is suggesting is at that moment you're poised on a fence. And she, for some bizarre reason, fell onto the other side of the fence and decides to become her her path to fulfilling her own careerist will to power. For her, in that moment, she realizes is to become the person fighting the the woman fighting the ERA. Uh, and I thought that was such a curious moment. I'm curious. I'd really be interested to know what you made about it. I agree that the uh, that episode where we see how it is that rather than, you know, when we meet her, she's considering a run for Congress. She wants to be in that meeting as a congresswoman. She wants to be on the Armed Services Committee. She she wants to get her hands into the middle of uh, nuclear strategy and Cold War strategy. That's her desire. Um, I think part of what the show is suggesting there is that she sees very clearly because she's very smart that she won't get there, that she can't get there, that even if she does get there, she'll still be condescended to and asked to take notes. And so she decides to write her own ticket in a realm where she can wield authority because she'll be in a realm that's exclusively of women. Um, I guess if I have one quibble with the show, it's just that we do spend more time with Schlafly, even in the episode centering on the other women. And I and I feel like I understand that moment for her and, and why she's making the choices she's making, which are more historically mystifying, better than I did for some of the other candidates. I mean, it's really moving to see how distraught Shirley Chisholm is when she feels like the other feminists are urging her to shoo herself off the stage when it becomes clear that she's not going to be the nominee. Um, But we don't get as deep a sense of how it is that she came to be a congressperson or decided to run. And so I felt that the characters of the people on the women's liberation side of these debates are slightly less fully drawn. And I think that's, again, why I didn't find the Gloria Steinem performance I just felt a little thin to me. Did did neither of you have that experience? I don't know. So far, I really like that character. I don't know how much deeper we'll get into her, but Rose Byrne makes a great double for Gloria Steinem, so much so that I couldn't figure out who it was until she took her aviator glasses off at some point, and then I realized, hey, that's Rose Byrne. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just seeing this through through rosy glasses because I had lowish expectations, but... I'm liking every character. I want to see what happens to all of them. We haven't mentioned that Margot Martindale, the great Margot Martindale, uh, most recently of The Americans, but, you know, who's just been great in so many TV shows, plays Bella Abzug, who, Julia, mm. you're probably too young to remember when Bella Abzug was this universal presence in, in the papers and was, this, this, to me, growing up, just this great figure of 
you know, just a, a woman who didn't care what you thought of her. I always, always loved Bella Abzug's presence in um, in the feminist movement, and Margot Martindale just just nails her kind of, you know, very earthy New York Jewish style. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, Julia. I, I, it feels to me like the initial impetus for making this was to explore the villainous character of Phyllis Schlafly and round out for people who probably don't know the role she played in making the world we all live in. And the rest of it is good, but but feels peripheral even when it gets more more screen time. I, well, a couple things about what I feel like I'm learning while I watch it, which is that women have been having a civil war since the 1970s. I mean, I, of course, knew that abstractly, but just to go back to what the American civil war that women have been having with one another, to go back to its origins and see of what pieces it was made, how that's a subset to the civil war, political civil war we've all been having since roughly the 60s and the 70s. And it's very shrewd about why we win it culturally and lose it politically, because they are ideologically and sociologically unified, a unified movement. I mean, mostly because they're a white majoritarian political movement with a single idea, right? The fanatical distrust of the state, which gets referred to by, I mean, Schlafly was a huge, huge important supporter of Goldwater on that principle alone. Whereas the rest of us were diverse, were more argumentative, were, I think, vastly more open-minded and therefore more fractious. And we have to build a coalition um, uh, across many different identities and life stories and viewpoints. And it, it tends to fall apart internally. And so the f- irony of the show that's driven home quite, quite beautifully is how fun it is to hang out with these argumentative, loose, funny, wild, revolutionary women. (laughs) And what a drag it is to be with a bunch of uptight, really kind of backwards-looking people. And yet you know that the backwards-looking people are going to win because there's just a tribal cohesiveness that really characterizes what it is to be on the right in America. And there's a fun, wild, you know, day at the zoo quality to being a lefty. I I count myself, you know, as one of them. So it's not an insult at all, but it just means at the end of the day that that this story is going to have to be a tragedy, which is what gives it a poignancy that I quite loved. Well, but the show also talks about the fact, I mean, there actually are pretty severe fractional instincts on the right as well in this show. I mean, there's an argument about race. There's a the question of whether they should jettison the representatives from Louisiana who are opposing integration as well. And it's not just that everybody agrees like a Borg. It's that they disagree. And then Schlafly ruthlessly welcomes the white supremacists. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, this is three thumbs up uh, pretty roundly. Correct. Yeah, big way up for me. I think yes. I liked it better than you guys. I, I yeah. stayed up very late watching it and can't wait to get back and binge the rest. I really loved it. I think all my half quibbles are just about the fact that there's a there's a slight quality of like, they gave us a show about feminism. We got to put everything in it. Like we may never get another one. <laughs> like it just feels, it feels overstuffed and slightly desperate in its desire to encompass it all because it's such a big story and so undertold. But it's really exciting to have a telling that's this juicy and interesting and good okay well it's mrs america it's on this hulu fx hybrid thing that no one will ever figure out um 
But I think it's also, I'm looking here, it looks like you can get it on Amazon Prime too at two bucks a pop. Anyway, check it out. We really liked it. Moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, before we go any further, this is when we talk about our business. If we have some, Dana, what do we have? Just one thing, Steve, just to tell listeners that in Slate Plus today for our last segment, we are going to talk about quarantine cookery, our experiences of procuring and preparing food in quarantine, and uh, we'll maybe exchange some recipes and also just talk about what the experience of cooking when stuck at home and having trouble finding ingredients is like. If you want to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, you can, of course, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program. This is a great way to support the magazine in a time when it really, really needs your support. For just $35 for the first year, you can help cover the cost of producing our show and all your other favorite Slate podcasts. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of those shows and many other benefits. So please, if you want to support the Slate Culture Gap Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, what's next? Fetch the Bolt Cutters is Fiona Apple's new album. It's her first one in eight years, I believe. Uh, It sounds kind of like nothing you've ever heard before, though we'll get into that. It's both a found object and an an exquisitely cut gem. It sounds painstakingly authored uh, on the one hand and on the other like it was made up on the spot. It sounds a little like Captain Beefheart and Nina Simone had a love child in the middle of scream therapy. It sounds kind of like music with no precedent at all. On the other hand... uh, and yet it's weirdly instantly cherishable, even memorable, even hummable. I found myself kind of knowing the melodies of some of these seemingly anti-melodic songs very, very quickly. I will say it is, to my mind, Carl, the most thrilling first listen experience I've had maybe in the last 20 years, but certainly in the course of doing this show. We're joined by Carl Wilson, a, a music critic for Slate. Carl, welcome back to the show. Hi, Thanks. I'm going to say let's start with a song, but you pick it. Yeah, it's difficult to choose. There's certainly a wealth of um, possibilities. But why don't we start uh, with the, the title track, in fact. And you maim when you're on offense, but you kill when you're on defense. And you've got them all convinced that you're the means and the end. All the VIPs and PYTs and wannabes afraid not being your friend. I've always been too smart for that, but you know what? My heart was not. I took it like a kid, you see. The cool kids voted to get rid of me. I'm ashamed of what it did to me, what I let get done. It stole my fun, it stole my fun. Fetch the bolt cutters. I've been in here too long. Fetch the bolt cutters. I've been in here too long. Carl, this, uh... This record already got a 10.0 from Pitchfork, which is virtually unprecedented. It's being hailed as a masterpiece. What do you think of it? I think that, um, yeah, the reaction has been incredible. Um, Partly, you know, for someone who um, is known much more for her conflicts with the music industry than for uh, her business savvy, um, Fiona Apple has really kind of seized this moment in a way that's incredible. Um, not only did she release 
this album in a moment where people's uh, attention is very available, but it also chimes with the moment in a lot of ways. This record was made over the past few years, mostly in her own house. And that that is part of the sense of spontaneity, but also careful craft that you were referring to, Stephen. You know, the her band would kind of drop by. So they did a lot of things like just sort of group theater exercises together, basically like marching around the house and chanting and just generating this kind of feeling. Um, And along with that, the theme, you know, that Fetch the Bolt Cutters song, and like many of the songs on the album, refers to this desire to sort of break out of old patterns and find new ways of looking at things, but also literally to to get out of of whatever kind of self-built prisons uh, we Mm -hmm. find ourselves in. And, And that thematically obviously speaks to this moment in many ways. I mean, predictably a brilliant answer, um, as always, Carl, but I'm not sure if you connected to this record yet. No, I felt the same way that you did in the sense that, you know, I first listened to it on Friday and I had had exactly the same feeling of um, as if I'd I'd known this record for a long time, which is a really strange, really strange feeling to have. Yeah, this is a, to me, this is like a deep immersive listen. This is a put it on and have a mood type of record, not a listen to it in the background while you have a conversation kind of record. It demands your attention. And I think you're right that it has come out at a moment where the world is poised to give it the attention it demands. Um, I was struck by how unpredictable it was song by song, like just the different types of sounds you encounter, the different lyrical flourishes, the uh, transitions between being super colloquial and super elliptical are all arresting. Um, I'd be curious, Carl, to hear you put this a little bit more in the context of her past music. I mean, she spends a lot of time referring to past slights and grievances and how she was misconstrued or misperceived or misapprehended by the world. And it's not clear to me whether those are personal narratives or narratives about her treatment at the hands of the music industry and the music press and everyone else and the pressures of being a female pop star fledged into the world at a very young age as a teenager. But not knowing all of that history cold, I was curious how you do place this in the rest of her work, Carl. Yeah, I think that that theme definitely is strong throughout the record. It's also a theme that has always been strong in her work. Um, You know, early on, she established this image very quickly of being, you know, one of the songs on her first album is called Sullen Girl. (laughs) And that that she kind of found a 90s moment where um, she sort of stood in this... um, in this kind of bruised glamour kind of way of this, as this over-emotional drama kid kind of figure and also kind of a cult figure off the top. And then, you know, the hazards of being a 19-year-old doing feature interviews with Spin and Rolling Stone and all of the magazines of the time and speaking in her kind of over-dramatic adolescent way. And, you know, at one point, in an interview, she sort of flippantly said that she would probably kill herself sometime soon or die young, and a big deal was made of that. She, um, she, when she won a, a VMA at the MTV Awards, she made this famous speech where she declared, this world is bullshit, um, which was taken by 
the press at large as her saying the world is bullshit, but what she was really saying is this showbiz world is bullshit. And if you listen back to it now, it's actually quite a moving, eloquent thing about having uh, saying to her fans and to kids watching that they shouldn't mistake um, the showbiz world as a thing that they needed to take their cues from and they didn't have to follow its idea of what was cool. Um, but again, it was taken as this kind of dramatic nihilist kind of statement and so she's had to contend with all of those all of the fallout of those early experiences and and really one of the things that you know this album emerges from is that she's kind of been a hermit in a lot of ways for the past you know six, eight years since the previous album came out or at least the sort of five years since she finished kind of promoting that album and she hasn't been performing and she hasn't really been um going out in public you know, Carl, in his review of the of the album for Slate, a rave review, Sam Adams called it the official album of the of the pandemic, and it sort of said that you know, without her having possibly been able to know that her album would be released in these times, that it is an album all about, as the title indicates, about escape, right, and about a sense of trying to find freedom in a situation where you're you're being crushed or pressed down, and a lot of the songs are about that. I, this album is, first of all, it's absolutely genius. And I had really no sense of who Fiona Apple was before, I think, because she hit big at exactly the time I stopped listening to pop music and had only a vague sense of it. And I think because of things like the coverage of that This World is Bullshit speech and just her, in general, her sort of provocateur attitude in public, that she struck me as, I thought that she was kind of a goth poser or something without really knowing any of her music at all. And so I was just incredibly impressed by the song craft and by the lyrics and the number of different kinds of songs she can write, um, but also by the amplitude of the theme. So it's sort of, in, in a way, a breakup album, or as you say, an album about gender and the patriarchy. It has elements to me of Exile in Guyville, the great Liz Fair album. Um, Right. But absolutely. Yeah. But it also and I mean, I'm sure you could say this about Liz Fairs, too, if we dug into that deep enough. But it also that sense of, of rage, which often in individual songs seems to be directed at a boyfriend or at an ex also can expand out to be, you know, a song about about politics and about the, the world in, in a larger sense. And I wanted to maybe hear a clip from, I think, maybe my favorite. Anyway, one of the catchiest songs on the album, which is Under the Table. Oh, kick me under the table all you want. I won't shut up, I won't shut up Kick me under the table all you want I won't shut up, I won't shut up so, yeah, I mean, this song to me, you guys talked about the familiarity in the sense hearing this album one time that you sort of already knew it. This song in particular to me just seemed like such an anthem of, of 2020. And even though it's just about a dinner party and, you know, somebody being speaking up at a dinner party at apparently something offensive that someone else said, to me, it, it felt like an anthem for the Trump era and just something that, you know, I wanted to walk down the street screaming along with as I as I heard it in my headphones. Yeah, there's the great line in it um, which she says I would beg to disagree but begging doesn't agree with me um, which really does feel like <laughs> something that you could walk around the White House chanting um, there's also um, the song Newspaper and the song Ladies which are really about how those patriarchal dynamics divide women and then there's the song For Her 
which is one of the shorter songs towards the end, which is short simply because it's so raw that I don't think it could sustain itself much further, which is really a, a Me Too moment song and clearly about those dynamics within the entertainment industry. Um, she's, and it's also kind of was um, a response to the Christine Blasey Ford hearings um, during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. But, you know, it's funny. I also think there are ways that this album, partly because, you know, she's been out of the spotlight for eight years, um, it, the breakthrough nature of it is being exaggerated a little bit. Like, she's always kind of had these chops, and she's always kind of um, been able to take on this kind of material, and those those overlays have been there. But I, too, Dana, I, early on, I was kind of just, you know, we were in our, you know, mid 20s at the time and and there's nothing somebody that age is less interested in than what teenagers are listening to um so so exactly, i kind of yeah. i kind of and, didn't and pay I, any attention I, for I, a I long time i felt myself for having ignored actually yeah. a lot of the interesting music of the mid 90s because i thought oh if it's popular it can't be any good can't be any good i mean i'm right there with both of you and um you know the last i thought about her she was a kind of slightly gothy ingenue with a triple pat- platinum you know debut album and a bunch of videos on MTV that didn't interest me and oh you know shame on me she's a woman making albums on par with anything Joni Mitchell ever did uh, I was gonna say Carl that it's it's funny how much the last record this is not an unprecedented record in the sense that her last one is also brilliant and odd sounding though maybe not quite as deconstructed and wild as this one that that idler's wheel is a incredible record there's a uh a Seamus Haney essay about about Robert Frost that I love called Above the Brim, in which Haney says quite brilliantly that if you read Frost carefully, yes, distinctively, he's a very um, formal, metrically formal poet, but but what he's constantly doing is generating a kind of energy or emotion that 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 kind of bubbles up above the brim, you know, in a weird way. And this is this this entire record is just above the brim. It's like a woman riding a lot of pain way up above the brim, uh, and beyond the brims of hope and propriety in a weird way, while also sort of extending a hand to the drowning. I mean, I think there's a lot of empathy being sent out by its weird vibes. I just think it's really a wild, wild, remarkable, totally bewitching piece of music i mean i just couldn't be more grateful for it it's an amazing uh record and you're right it's so of the moment we're all trapped in, inside there is a kind of claustrophobia to the record um yeah it's just a remarkable thing can i add to that steve one more quality i very much appreciate about this album is that it's short which you know given how brilliant we're saying it is you might say well why not more of it but i loved the compression and smallness of it and that you know even though each song was extremely ambitious the album itself has a kind of very tight focus yeah i agree completely dana you know one of the things that i felt listening to it is like it's it's the perfect size and it's perfectly sequenced do you feel the album evolving from one sound to another over the course of it and so by the time you're in the middle you've you've been really gradually sucked into this particular sonic world and you feel like you can live there and then it ends you know with a <laughs> compared to a lot of albums today with you know sort of respectful period of time and leaves you with that feeling of oh I want to go back to the beginning and start again and take that ride again and the, it's a it's a subtle art, really, to um, find that balance. I was glad you mentioned the song for her before, Carl, because to me, you know, having heard Fetch the Bolt Cutters, which is 
just a, a it's anthemic in its twisted, weird, quiet way because the release of when she finally calls for the bolt cutters is, feels so big and and potent. Um, but I really also loved the distance between that song and the song for her that you name checked, which is full of this kind of cascading internal half slant rhyme. It feels like it's driven by kind of verbal curiosity that still adds up to really fascinating elliptical meanings. And, um, you know, sort of sounds ancient. It sounds like something mermaids would sing to you on the beach or something. Like it has such an odd quality to it. And um, highlights one thing I love about this album, which is, is that it has big, weird musicality and big feelings, but but not at the expense of really thorny, complicated, interesting words, like just the texts themselves as texts of words, even separate from the music, I think, are gnarly and fascinating. And you want to go back and listen to them again after you've listened to them once. So I would point to for her in that regard. Look at how feathered his cocks are. See how seamless his frocks are. Look at his paper being low without rocks are. Look at how long she walks and how far was she lost or maybe she was not for traveling in the stock car anymore. Maybe she spent her formative years dealing with his contentious fears and endless tears that are endless tears. Or maybe she just got tired of watching him sniff white off the Carl, uh, as always, a total pleasure, man. Thank you for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. It was, um, it's nice to have um, something as absorbing and and kind of joy making as this to talk about right now yeah here here all right stay safe then you too trying to act like the other girl acts and you strike me a bit exact but you know that you never really go to the mat you tie everything up ready in the second act when you know that it didn't go exactly like that you arrive and drive like it's all stuff bad this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mac works for Knox Oil and Gas, a Houston conglomerate. When he gets sent on a sensitive mission to the Scottish Highlands, he must acquire the entire seaside town of Furness so that the strip of unspoiled coast that it's part of and surrounded by can be turned into a mammoth oil refinery. What follows is a fish-out-of-water comedy on the surface. Really, it's kind of a fish who was out of water already and didn't know it, but is now swimming and beguiling in subtle depths within its depths lies a parable about technology, globalization, environmental catastrophe, and the relationship of our acquisitiveness to our desire. This movie came out in 1983. It elevated its writer-director, Bill Forsyth, to the status of Scottish cinema's founding father. Uh, Many people, including Danny Boyle, have attested to that. It stars Peter Riegert, Dennis Lawson, Jennifer Black, and Burt Lancaster. Also has an otherworldly, in my uh, estimation, performance by a very young Peter Capaldi. Why don't we listen to a clip? Some business. It's the only business. Could you imagine a world without oil? No automobiles. No paint. And polish. No ink. And nylon. No detergents. And perspex. You wouldn't get any perspex. No polythene. Dry cleaning fluid. 
Uh-huh. And waterproof coats. Do they make dry cleaning fluid out of oil? Oh, yeah. I do not know that. Uh, I didn't know that. Do you know anything about the stars? Not much. Why? I want to check something out. I'll get a book or something. Dana, I'm going to start with you. I, What can I say? I think you probably agree with me about one thing, which is the criticism, good criticism happens when you can balance your own passions against your capacity for disinterested judgment, which I absolutely cannot do with this film. So I'm curious what you as a critic made of it. I mean, I think I experienced it mainly as uh, on a personal level as well, because I knew it was so important to you. And it's just such a Stephen movie. I mean, there were so many moments when I was laughing at some joke or, you know, enjoying some moment in this movie and thinking that is so Steve. It's no wonder in the world that this is his favorite movie. So, yes, thank you for making me rewatch this. I had not seen it, I think, since it came out when I was a teenager. And I seriously doubt that I appreciated its beauty and subtlety and complexity at that time, although I do remember liking it, but not as much as Gregory's Girl, another Bill Forsyth movie that's maybe more relatable for somebody of that age. Um, Yeah, this movie is just a, a tiny little miracle of a movie. It just achieves this strange balance of tones where, I mean, the word that kept occurring to me as I was watching was pure. There's this incredible purity to this movie, but that makes it sound as if it were prim or priggish, which it's not at all. It's got this kind of wry and sometimes, you know, slightly naughty sense of humor. Um, But there's a purity of intention behind it and just um, almost a spiritual mission that this movie has that sounds so pretentious and so not like what it feels like to watch a Bill Forsyth movie. But, um, you know, this movie has, as you said, I mean, it's trying to accomplish some some big things, right? I mean, it's not only about all of these characters who are beautifully drawn, little small portraits of characters, all the townspeople and, you know, the, the, the two guys, Peter Capaldi and Peter Riegert's characters who are the strangers in the town. Um, but it's also got this this bigger, almost moral or spiritual mission because it's sort of talking about, you know, what is the purpose of community and, um, you know, what is the future of the planet? And we see Mac, the Peter Riegert character, being seduced by this town and kind of brought into its spell and starting to question what he's doing, you know, coming in, essentially buying the town out to turn it into an oil refinery. Uh, but we also see the mixed motives of all the townspeople, right? I mean, it really is a movie about, as you say, globalization and capitalism, because it's not the case that this is simply a magical brigadoon town that this awful American capitalist is coming to ruin. In fact, the locals can't wait to drive up the price so that they can become millionaires off the deal, right? So there's all these great scenes in the pub of the locals conspiring together, trying to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we sort of up the ante by presenting ourselves as this traditional rooted community that, you know, will need to be bought out at top dollar. So there's just, there are so many currents and countercurrents. I mean, fittingly for a very maritime movie that's set on the sea. Um, And also, I mean, this is just a very Bill Forsyth thing, but it's one of those movies where you never know what to expect in the next scene, right? I mean, not to give too much away, but when the Russian shows up in the middle of the movie oh, by boat and, and a whole new character enters in who's important, but also a whole new part of the world, right? In a sense that even this little town on the sea in Scotland is a place where, as everybody keeps saying about the specialness of this bay and the town of Furness, that things for all, from all over the world wash up, right? At one point, a crate of oranges washes up and they eat the oranges. And then this movie has that quality of miraculous arrivals that keep surprising you. Oh, that's so sweet. Um, Julia? Yeah, I mean, I like Dana. I love the steveness of this, the notion that it's 
a sensitive and subtle inquisition into the 80s ethos. So it seems like no wonder it's captured your attention. It's like a, a yuppie out of water movie, right? Um, but it, the thing I love most about it is that it, as Dana says, has such big ambitions and is so subtle and surprising in its storytelling. Like if you hear this plot, oil executive goes to small rural town, tries to buy it to build environment destroying refinery. You kind of think you would know what that movie is, right? Like, and, and you'd think the town would be sad and that the scenery would be beautiful and that the bucolic versus the urban would be, you know, intention and this, that, and the other. Just there's so many thorny, surprising little hooks in this. I love how one sign that Mac is becoming fluent in the ways of the town is that every time they step out of the tiny hotel where they're staying, they almost get mowed down by a moped. Like it just because it's bucolic Scotland doesn't mean there isn't like a fast moving moped that's about to murder them every time they step out and slowly Mac becomes aware of the rhythms of the place and learns to pause and check for the moped before he steps out into the street. And so, you know, familiarity with the place is actually familiarity with the machine, a machine that runs on petroleum, right? Like everything is intermingled and, and interlocked. And then I love that the, the fundamental joke that the townspeople can't wait to sell their paradise to the oil company. They're dying to, it's all they want. Um, and they're kind of conniving in this hilarious way to get a great deal. And we believe in their leader and he does a pretty good job, but we also know how much the oil company is willing to pay. And if I'm, if I was following the movie correctly, they undersell Mm -hmm. by about $40 million. Is it? I think they're willing to pay 60 million and they only pay 20. So even though the, the ruthless townspeople are, you know, strategizing fundamentally as a negotiation for Mac, he cleans up, right? Even no matter how surprisingly canny and conniving the townspeople are still the oil company wins. Um, And then I just love how weird the movie is. Like there's an extraordinary scene where there's a holdout in the town and in, we see the townspeople coming to the redoubt of the holdout because he's threatening their millions. And it looks like a, the way it's shot, it looks like a zombie invasion. You begin to feel like perhaps the movie will have violence in it. Like the movie feels like it could literally go anywhere in the next yeah. scene. And it just has this singularity and weirdness to it that makes it really special. A, a couple of quick stories to talk about the tone of it, which I think is the one irreplaceable thing or the ineffable, like most ineffable thing about it. And I think you're right that it comes from a place of innocence. Bill Forsyth tells this incredible story about the movie he made, shot after this called Comfort and Joy, which is like criminally unavailable in the United States, at least right now. But it's a wonderful movie in some ways, maybe it's not it's not as good as local hero Gregory Sears. It's the third best movie that he made. I mean, he made three tremendously good movies, and that's one of them. But in it, very quickly, it tells about it. It's like the ice cream wars in Edinburgh, Glasgow. I think Glasgow. It's in Glasgow. It's the ice cream wars. So these ice cream trucks, and they're like they're in competition with one another, and they're like smashing their windows and and slashing their tires. And it's this very lighthearted, gentle look at like why this rivalry developed and and how it's unfolding. And as Forsyth tells the story, he said, I write, wrote this whole movie about this kind of, I was like, the ice cream, why would ice cream trucks be 
having fights with one another. I found the situation very absurd because it was happening in real life and I decided to make a lighthearted, wonderful movie about it, whatever. And uh, someone had to tell him after the movie screened, he said, well, well, where were the drugs? And he was like, what? And he said, that's why the ice cream trucks were slashing each other's tires and smashing their windows in real life in Glasgow. It's because they were drug fronts, Bill. And he was like, didn't know it. Right. And there's just this, <laughs> there's just this incredible t- deafness and lightness of touch. I've seen Forsyth. I've met Forsyth. I've seen him speak twice. There's this beauty to the man that's very hard to describe a gentleness and a beauty. I mean, it, it, it gentleness and incisiveness I've never seen go together in film or in a human being as they do with Forsyth and his work. But, and then the second is that. You know, Forsyth made this movie in negotiation with a very powerful British p- producer named David Putnam, who gave him enormous amounts of freedom to make the movie he wanted to make. It is the movie that Forsyth imagined and wrote. Um, nonetheless, some power that be wanted there to be music in it, and, and, and Forsyth didn't want that at all. And they forced Mark Knopfler, the guitarist and singer and songwriter of uh, Dire Straits, onto Forsyth, which I don't think he was very happy with. And what happened was... Knopfler, for some reason, went to the um, went to the shoot uh, to the Scottish town, which is Pennon, a real town in Scotland where it's shot, an incredibly beautiful town, which I've been to, and uh, hung around the set, saw what they were doing, absorbed what they were doing, and the spirit of the place. Uh, and he wrote an incredibly beautiful score to the movie. I mean, it has some sort of cheesy 80s synth pop elements that are overwhelmed by the affection that Knopfler developed for the town. And when I went back there, they say that the only person from the movie who routinely comes back is Knopfler. And Knopfler would close his Dire Straits shows by playing the theme from Local Hero. I mean, there's just a, there's a level of engagement and love that the movie is about that took place in the making of the movie. And then I just have to quickly say among the things, I mean, you guys picked up on obviously what's the great commanding joke of the movie, which is that this isn't Brigadoon. And and Forsyth said, I don't want to make a movie about the Brigadoon thing of people coming to Scotland and falling in love with it and becoming changed forever, even though it is about that, it undermines it because a lot of the charm that the village puts on is simply a negotiating ploy um, in order to help them no longer be the hardworking poor. And, and I, you know, I just am amazed at how the movie is built around tiny, tiny little jokes that you might miss, but a very large one that's incredibly powerful and and wise. And that the movie, I will also say, manages to feature an intercession of the heavens and a mermaid. And it does not ever become um, you know, painfully tinctured with corniness at all. I, I just regard it to this day as, as, a, as a perfect film. Steve, since you know this movie like the back of your hand, can we talk about some of the the smaller performances? Of course, Peter Rieger, Peter Capaldi, we already mentioned as the duo who are invading the town. Also, Burt Lancaster, who spends most of the time off-site, right, back in Houston. You visit him and his bizarre interaction with his psychiatrist. There's a whole side story about that that we haven't even mentioned that is just the most perverse, weird sense of humor ever. Um, So those are sort of the big names associated with it. But all of these people in the town are incarnated by incredible Scottish actors. Do you have anything to say about about that side of it? Oh, I mean, nothing that you wouldn't say, Dana, I'm sure, but Dennis Lawson, I mean, Gordon Urquhart to me is one of the great characters in the history of made-up people. I mean, he's the unofficial mayor of the town, the hotelier, you know, he's in this super sexually active marriage that, you know, 
Mac can scarcely believe is real. And he's just the most comfortable in his own skin, secretly sort of shrewd. He's like almost like a superhero, but but uh, the performance is just is just absolutely perfect. Jennifer Black as his wife Stella, uh, you know, is the kind of slightly magical woman in the film. You know, Riegert regards this as the best work of his entire career, the most meaningful film that he ever made. He's doing he he's very small in the movie. He he played it really small. You probably on set were befuddled by what he was doing, but it works. Uh, I love um, Peter Capaldi as Danny is just precious in this film. This stork, this weird, spazzy stork of a young man. Oh, my man. God. His physical comedy, the way he runs at several different <laughs> points, right? Eagerly running across the beach to bring someone some some desperately important news. He is very stork-like. It's just, it's great. I, as someone who knew Peter Capaldi from, you know, the thick of it and in the loop, and, I, and he sees Doctor Who, etc., I had never seen the very young, or I guess I had when I was very young, but without knowing he was Peter Capaldi. And he's just a total revelation and utter sweetheart. Yeah, I didn't place him as Capaldi until the credits rolled, and that was sort of a delight, too. I mean, he looks so different than current craggy Capaldi, although, of course, that's who it is. I also, I mean, Stella, the the wife, the, the very horny wife, is slightly magical pixie dream Scottish wife. The, my favorite female character in the movie, I mean, you know, I will not uh, subject this movie to full... Um, Bechdel test scrutiny, which it wouldn't pass, but it's from 1983, so we'll allow it. Um, but the the best female character in the movie is the the kind of pre splash mystical marine biologist who yes. is um, it, weirdly the half mer woman is not the manic pixie dream girl of the movie, and she is like a you know a, a, a woman of science and purpose and mystery and the way in which she's introduced and reemerges is just so delightful and hilarious. And the expression on her face while she indulges being pitched woo to by Peter Capaldi, <laughs> seeming pretty happy about it, but like not, but she's basically just like lies back on a rock and like lets him kiss her shins. <laughs> and it's kind of like, I guess if you want, sure. <laughs> it's just such a sweet, unusual, um, Hollywood depiction of romance. Um, and I'll just say that like what I love about this movie is, is it's, 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 and I think the reason I responded to it is I saw it in 1983. It was a very fucked up time in my life. And it's a movie about a dick who's secretly longing to feel belonging, a sense of belonging and will probably be failed, you know, thanks to his own powers of alienation instead. And I think one of the reasons it's very you know, moving for me to hear that you responded to it is that it's so close to me that I can't even think of it as it's like a child. Like I can't think of it as separate from my own sense of self anymore. And so for other people to see it and respond to it as a film to me is, is really lovely. So thank you so much for comfort cultering with uh, local hero. So fun. Uh, all right. The movie's local hero criterion. Finally, finally did it justice with a, a beautiful uh, Blu-ray edition with uh, all kinds of add-ons, doodads, and a lovely essay. So that's one way to see it. It's also streaming. Let me know what you think of this movie, please. I think, maybe. All right, moving on. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. Steven, because I'm not yet done mooning over Local Hero, my endorsement is going to involve it as well. And uh, this is a little bit of a going out on a limb endorsement because I haven't seen the whole thing yet, but I just started it and I'm totally delighted. But did you know about the making of documentary about Local Hero? What? <laughs> Just go on YouTube, baby. <laughs> what? There is a 50-minute long behind-the-scenes featurette. I don't know if it was made for a DVD or if it was just... I'm not sure exactly what the story behind it is because whoever posted it on YouTube didn't do a great job of describing that. But yes, you can watch a documentary called The Making of Local Hero in which you see Bill Forsyth himself walking around on the beach in Furness telling people where to go and what to do and setting up his shots and uh, you know some fun backstage or back-behind-the-camera banter. I'm only about 10 minutes into this 50-minute documentary, but I can tell... It's going to be a total thrill. And I'm so excited you didn't know about it, Steve. I thought you would know it cold. Oh, my Lord. I mean, I probably know it cold already, Dana. But um, no, I, I, that's great. I, I, anything, more local hero content. Julia, what do you have? Longtime listeners of this program know that I'm a fan of David Sibley, who is essentially the Audubon of, or, or Roger Tory Peterson of this moment. He is a birder who loves birds so much he learned how to paint in order to capture them properly, then redid bird guides for North America so that they solved all the problems he found in the bird guides he was using when he learned to bird. Then he wrote a book called Sibley's Birding Basics, which is a book that I think I discussed on the show, which I read after the election and found to be like a profound, um, tiny little document about how facts add up to information. Um, And now he has written a book with the beguiling title of What It's Like to Be a Bird, which attempts to answer that question and is sort of the mad passion project of a bird-mad person who has done a ton of research, not just about birding identification, but birding behavior, why it is that they feed the way they feed, how they nest, what the different patterns of behavior are, are, what the migration is like, Um, what the travel is like, how fishing works, what the mechanics of swimming is. The book explains why geese fly in a V. Never really even thought to wonder why geese fly in a V. Do you know why geese fly in a V? Something about visibility? That the outside geese can see things the inside geese can't? No. Steve, do you have a guess? No. Mm, No, I do not. So each goose leaves in its wake a disturbance in the air which if you fly directly behind it, uh, it does not help you fly, but which if you move yourself a little bit sideways becomes a little wave you can crest. So essentially it's almost like, you know, dolphins surfing the wake of a boat or something like that. The the drag of the bird in front of you becomes a little lift for the, whichever wing is riding in the wake of the bird in front of you. Wow. So anyway, it's just, I mean, it's honestly weirder than his other books. Like big Sibley's Burning Basics is like a perfect little tome to be read in order. This book almost feels like it's, it was too much to 
Marshall, like the whole intro essay is kind of like, just hop in and out. Don't read it in order. It's kind of whatever you want. And then there's like a weird prefatory chapter that has just like lists of strange facts. And when I started reading it, I was like, I think Sibley's gone mad. And then <laughs> you get to what the, center, the what the heart of the book is. I would say skip past the prefatory chapter. The heart of the book is just beautiful portraits of um, birds in action doing activities and then little descriptions of facts about those activities. And you can feel that he's been constrained by the need to paint birds in their most identifiable postures. You know, there's sort of these classic ways you paint them for bird guides where you see the wing, you see the underside, you see this, you see that. And now he gets to paint them in motion, in movement. I will also say that I pre-ordered this when I learned of its existence like months ago. And then it just materialized on my doorstep in the middle of the pandemic, like a gift from my past self. So my endorsement is what it's like to be a bird. Pretty weird book, but kind of a glorious one. And definitely I think one you could just sort of have lying around for people to discover and dip into. So my endorsement this week is this little journey that I'm going to take you all on and I'll try to make it quick. But I love the band, The Pains of Being Pure at Heart. Um, and I love their song, Kelly. I, I Ordinarily, the guy who writes the song sings them, but there's a woman vocalist on the song, Kelly. It's just ex- an exultant, really beautiful indie pop uh, rocker, mid-tempo rocker, up-tempo rocker. And um, her vocal is just is soaring and, and, and uplifting, and it's it's worth it alone. And I was watching a live performance of it. And I think the woman who sings it is typically the keyboardist. And there was another woman playing keyboards. And in the little comments on YouTube, it said, oh, that's so-and-so from this band, Beverly. I was like, okay, cool. Let me check out Beverly. So I check out Beverly. Beverly is this two-woman, you know, indie rock, noise, noise, kind of noise pop, rock duo, two women, really great. I really enjoyed it, what they're doing. It turns out the other woman in Beverly is a drummer, and I went to a YouTube video of her, of the two of them actually, giving an interview to Fred Armisen, who hosts an internet TV show about women drummers. And <laughs> it's, it's called Tom Tom TV. And it's a subsidiary of Tom Tom Magazine, which is, let me read to you, Tom Tom Magazine is the only magazine in the world dedicated to female drummers. We are a 74-page, full-color, quarterly print magazine, website, events, social media, community, academy, and more. Tom Tom Magazine is more than just a magazine. It is a movement. I've been... So you are now with me down the internet rabbit hole. The Not every episode is hosted by Armisen, but they're very, very charming when they are. This one was great. But this... I've just discovered the entirety of the magazine, the, the, the existence of an entire magazine, media empire, really, uh, burgeoning up a, a, around this weird random finding. And I'm d- digging it so much, right? Like each one of you, you both probably have a favorite, f- favorite female drummer from the rock canon, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Don't put us on the. Don't put us on the spot. I know. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess. Ja- I guess Janet from Sleater Kenny probably. There you go. Right. I mean, that's the tie-in with with Armisen, right? There's Mo Tucker of the Velvet Underground, and um, and of course uh, Lindy Morrison of the Go Betweens uh, down in Melbourne, who I believe is a listener. Um, there are a lot lot to choose from. There is nothing better than just a true niche magazine. I remember discovering when I worked at Sports Illustrated a magazine called Goalie's World, which was fresh out of Montreal and entirely about the art of being a hockey goalie and literally just had like pages and pages of spreads 
of like different ways to position your body and gloves, like <laughs> shot by frame by frame reenactments of different particular saves. And I was like obsessed with how core and niche this magazine is. And, and Tom Tom as a media empire sounds similarly focused. All right. Well, anyway, uh, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. That's at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And every week, I feel like we get more and better emails. They're very heartening in a time like this, especially. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Or you can engage with us on Twitter. Our feed is at slatecultfest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Please, please, please stay safe. Hang in there and we will see you soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.